Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today, we are joined by Chancellor Emeritus John White from the University of Arkansas. His top values are faith, integrity, empathy, vision, and flexibility. Chancellor White, when I think of leadership, you're one of the people that comes to mind in part because you are a great leader and also because you've you teach a class on leadership and today we wanted to just talk to you about leadership but uh, one thing i'd like to talk to you about in particular if you wouldn't mind is what motivated you to teach your course on leadership what is something that caused you to really want to do that actually i didn't want to do it and uh I had several people telling me I should do so. And I wasn't sure because I've been teaching since March of 1963. And I've never taught a course that didn't have equations in it. Well, I've noticed most of the books you've written almost look like mathematics books. And you, I know you've written a book and taught a book on queuing theory. Yes, yes. Um, And for those of you who don't know what queuing theory is, it's about lines right yes waiting lines yes and my wife thought it was crazy that I could write an entire book on standing in line (laughs) she couldn't figure that out (laughs) and uh, my mother wanted to go through that book of course there are very few words in it but she was able to understand most of the words but I thought about it and I decided I needed to get someone's advice so my wife and I made a trip up to Blacksburg Virginia to meet with Paul Torgerson, who was the person who recruited me from Ohio State to come to Virginia Tech. and He was my department head and then he became dean and he had a big influence on me. When he became dean, he continued to teach. And then when he became president at Virginia Tech, he continued to teach. And so when I became dean at Georgia Tech, I continued to teach. And when I came here as chancellor, I told, uh, President Sugg, that one of the conditions would be that I'd continue to teach. He said, I don't see how you can teach and be chancellor. And I said, then I don't see how I can be chancellor. And so I knew it could be done. And so I asked Paul, and he said, you should do it. I said, but what book would I use? He said, use Steve Samples, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And I've read that. Yeah, it's and I book. said, Steve sent it to me, and it's on my, my bookcase. Uh, I'd known Steve for a long time. So when I read the book, I saw that he taught a leadership course at Southern Cal with Warren Bennis. Together they taught the course. So I called the office and uh, Steve was on a sabbatical. He just stepped down as president at, at Southern Cal and he was away. I talked to his executive assistant, told her who I was and uh, my relationship with Steve and told her what I was interested in was learning more about the course. She said, let me put you in touch with a person who works behind the scenes with Dr. Sample and with Dr. Bennis. 
and a woman came on the phone and I introduced myself. She said, oh, I know you. I said, really? I grew up in Fayetteville. Oh, you did? Yes, I came to the university when you came as chancellor and I got my degree there in anthropology. And I came to Southern Cal and I got my doctorate in anthropology with a focus on leadership. How can I help you? And sent me the syllabus there. Meanwhile, I was invited by the Dean of Engineering at uh, University of Florida to serve on a panel to talk about leadership for engineering students and to answer a series of questions. And one of those was, what can we do uh, in engineering to better equip our, our graduates for leadership positions? And one of my responses was, develop a course on leadership. And I realized that I had no excuse now to not develop a course on leadership. If I was recommending it to others, then surely I should try to do it. And Paul thought I should do it, so okay. So this is the course that I have now taught without equations in it. Well, you know, uh, Dr. White, this reminds me of one of your values. I know that one of your top five values is integrity. And when I think of integrity, I think of integrated. Things are integrated, and so it means your life is integrated. And so you're a leader, and you're teaching leadership. That seems like integration. What do you think of when you think of integrity? I think of honesty. I think of candor. I think of character. I think of living the way my parents raised me to live and the way I've tried to raise my children to live is that it's someone you can trust. And trust, I think, is essential in leadership. And you cannot have trust if you don't have integrity, in my judgment. And I think that's one of the big challenges in this country right now, frankly. And that's, uh, that's more than a political statement. It's also about business as well. I agree. Well, Dr. White, um, that leads to something else you mentioned as one of your top five values, and which is empathy. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, when I think of empathy, I think of um, it's a key component of emotional intelligence. You know, and there's so many leaders who really lack in that that we're aware of in politics and in business and and in other places. But when people lack that empathy, that ability to see things from another person's perspective, it makes your emotional intelligence low, which makes it hard for people to trust you because they don't, they can sense you're not understanding them. How did you develop empathy? Because we all are, you know, we have some empathy when we're born. I'm sure there's some genetics involved, but most of us develop it a little bit as we go through life. Not everyone does, but how about you? Um, have you developed it, or has it been constant the whole time? Oh, I think it's developed, and I think it's developed by disappointments in your life as you go along. If you have a lot of disappointments and you've gotten through those disappointments, then you can more easily identify with other people and the disappointments in their lives. And that happened to me as a student. It happened with me as a professional. It's happened lots of ways. I think an, another key about emotional intelligence, you have to first start with knowing yourself until you know yourself, because the toughest person you'll ever have to lead will be yourself. And so you've got to really understand 
in the deep, deep, deep recesses and the dark, dark places in you, what is it you truly value? What do you want to be? And are you living those values? And so once you do that, and I, I went through that process many years ago, then after that, then it stops being about you and it starts being about other people. And so my desire, what I want as my, I guess my mission statement in a way, is that I want to be able to say, as Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, I fought the good fight, I kept the faith, I finished my course, and I want to add and I made a difference. And I decided a long time ago that where I wanted to make a difference was in the lives of people. And so that's why I'm teaching, because I can't think of any better way for me to be in contact with young people and try to set a good example for them and to try as best I can to shape them to go out and be models of integrity. Well, you know, another one of your top values is vision. And I just asked you about empathy, and it seemed like your discussion of empathy led into your faith and your vision, both, which reflects your integrity, I think. It's all integrated. Yeah. But you mentioned your mission, which is what you're about. Mm-hmm. And you quoted uh, scripture, which gets to one of your values, faith. And I always think of faith as believing in things you can't see, something that, you know, is beyond the natural. Mm -hmm. Is that how you think about it? Of course. Of course I do. I almost quoted the scripture verse about (laughs) faith is the evidence of things not seen. And back on the vision part... I hadn't really appreciated the role it would play when I gave the high school commencement address over in Harrison, Arkansas back in 1957 that I used a quotation from Thoreau that went something like this, if you built castles in the air, your work need not be lost, that's where they should be, now put foundations under them. And I've had big dreams and lofty goals all of my adult life. It didn't just start when I came to be chancellor at the university and setting those 2010 goals, which most people thought there's no way we could get there. I did the same kind of thing as dean at at Georgia Tech. I did the same kind of thing at National Science Foundation when I was the assistant director for engineering. Did the same thing in our consulting firm when we created it. I just think big. There in Georgia Tech, uh, there was such rivalry with the University of Georgia. We don't like to say anything good about a University of Georgia graduate, but Louis Grizzard was a funny guy. He wrote a column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and uh, humorist and all terrific books, great titles on the, the books. But the one that's my favorite is the one that has titled, Shoot Low Boys, They Might Be Riding Shetland Ponies. <laughs> and I think too often in organizations we shoot too low. And I think we ought to aim high. I would rather accomplish 80% of a lofty goal than to accomplish 100% of a short minimalist goal. For me, it's stretching. It's all about stretching. And uh, I think that's one of the curses of industrial engineering is we have this continuous improvement gene in us that thinks we can always do better. So I just set lofty goals. You know, that 
One of your other, your last of the top five values is flexibility. Mm-hmm. You were talking about getting 80% of the big goal mm-hmm. versus 100% of the small goal. It requires a lot of flexibility to do that because we can have a plan, but the world changes around us and we're constantly morphing and pivoting. Yeah. How did you develop flexibility? It took a long time. You can't really see it because I don't have much hair now, but when I was young it was red and I was very stubborn. I just didn't have a whole lot of flexibility about me. It was the white way or the highway, uh, or white way or the wrong way. <laughs> and it took me a while to realize that that wasn't going to be successful, that I needed to, to change the way that I interact with people. And I need to listen a lot more. And I need to be flexible. And I shouldn't just say, I know the answer. I really do believe I think it's Donnie Smith from Tyson that said the answer is always in the room. That you ought to rely on other people to create the answers. That you as a leader shouldn't be coming with all the answers. The answer's in the room. And so to do that means that you need to be flexible. And you shouldn't go into it thinking, I've got the answer. No, no, I have the question is what I need to go into the room with. And I so, love that. It also... I think it does reflect flexibility, as you say, but it also reflects the fact that you value other people. Because as we value other people, we listen to them more. Yeah, I would much prefer to be the leader of the best team than the best leader of a team. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before. So well, you, I, you, you'd rather be the leader, the leader of the, best, of the team best team rather than the best leader of a team. I think oh the focus has got to be on the team. If, if John can't be on the leader. I've been reading a lot about leadership for 30 years. I've never heard that quote. I don't think I stole it from anyone. Did you, did you just come up with it? Or? Well, I said that. I gave a talk at the Informs conference. They had a session on leadership, and I was the keynote. And I was, They gave me the title, How to Become a Leader in Academics or something like that. Did you say Informs? Yeah. Did you have to come up with a theorem for that? No. No. <laughs> no. Informs is the Operations Research and Management Science Organization. Yeah. yeah. And so there I just, I had a, I was trying to get the message across to them that it needs to be focused on the team and that I would rather be the leader of the best team to be the best leader of a team. Hmm. And, uh, to get them to understand what that meant. That I think leaders need to remove from their vocabulary the words I, me, and my and replace it with we and our. Uh, and it, hmm. it needs to, to really get focused on the team. Dr. White, when you're a leasing, have you ever had a situation where you've been working on something, maybe for a year, maybe for two years, and you're thinking, we've really made a lot of progress. And then all of a sudden you get with some people in your organization and they say, we haven't done anything at XYZ, right? Yeah. How do you handle that? Do you, do you just say, oh, no, that's not true. Here's the reality. Or do you just listen and then ignore it? If that situation happens and you realize that, number one, you've not been communicating effectively, that 
in some way other people's measures of success differ from yours. And what you think is great progress to them may seem like minimal progress. One of the biggest challenges I had when I came as chancellor was changing attitudes and expectations in the state. I, I wasn't going to be content with being the best university in Arkansas. That to me was shooting low boys. They might be riding Shetland ponies. But when I was dean at Georgia Tech, uh, I met with the engineering faculty and, and said, look, I want us to eliminate the claim we're the best engineering program in the South. I'm not going to be happy until we're the best engineering program in the world. And it bugs me to go over to the bookstore and find that I can buy a t-shirt that says Georgia Tech, the MIT of the South. I won't be happy until I can go to MIT's bookstore and find MIT, the Georgia Tech of the North. I like it. <laughs> uh, but I just, uh, that's why I said that quotation from Thoreau in 1957. I hadn't realized how it had shaped me so much. that. Would I, you requote it? Yeah. If you've built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That's where they should be. Now put foundations under them. That is really powerful. I don't know why I picked it, but I did. It could have been an encouragement from my father. He taught literature. He, he got his master's here at the university in English, and that he was a high school administrator. And, but I don't think so. I think I, I was a voracious reader through high school. I read just about all of Shakespeare's works and things like that just because I enjoyed it. My parents thought that when I go to college I was going to major in English and then I wound up in engineering. So I've had a, a bit of a right brain, left brain challenge throughout my life, I think. Okay, now, Dr. White, all leaders face accusations at times, right? Some accusations we respond to some accusations we don't. Some accusations we should respond to. Some accusations we shouldn't. How do you have any idea which accusation to respond to? Well, if it's an accusation against you that is in the newspaper, you just need to ignore it because you can't go to war with someone who buys ink by the barrel. I mean, you just are never going to win that. So you just have to let it go. Now, if it's someone that's making the accusation, then I think you need to set the record straight if it has any challenge about your integrity. It just depends on what the accusation is and who's making it, I think, and how you're going to respond to it. There's not going to be a cookie-cutter approach to answering almost any kind of question. I believe very strongly that Steve Sample in his book was right when he said leadership is situational and contingent, that it always depends upon the situation and it's going to be contingent on those circumstances that exist at the time. So if someone's making an accusation against me, and, and one has been made recently, that essentially all of the difficulties in the University of Arkansas athletic program are due to me. It was my fault. And so You're not a good quarterback? Well, no. It's not, I'm sure that the loss to Alabama on Saturday was my fault. I, I haven't seen it yet in print but I'm sure it's going to be coming soon. 
But I've been, oh yes, I've been accused of lots of things. Earlier in my career, I would have wanted to go to war over it. But maybe it was the 11 years in the crucible of being the chancellor that my skin is much thicker now. And unfortunately, a lot of things just roll off me. Mm. And I got to the point where I thought, maybe it's time for me to step down because maybe my skin has gotten so thick that I should be paying more attention to some of those criticisms. So there's fine balance in how much you're going to shrug it off and how much you're going to take it and listen to it and see, is there something there? In order for you to do that, you can't do it alone. You've got to have someone you really trust that can give you good feedback. And unfortunately, in most of those situations, I didn't have someone that could give me good feedback on that. That's the one thing I really missed as chancellor, was knowing I was getting honest feedback, totally objective. Because no matter who you would ask for it, you suspect they may have an agenda. And uh, the best I could do was my counterpart at Texas A&M and my counterpart at Ole Miss. And those were two individuals I could talk to and feel like I was getting real objective, honest advice and counsel on some things. But in terms of my performance, never. When you think about leadership, right, there's one, for one thing, you're, you're trying to do, and I, I see this from you, you've got the motivation of trying to do good. You're trying to help people become better. That takes a lot of time, effort, thought, but the time aspect is so tricky because I know you work a lot of hours and you have, and you've got, your Vita proves it. You've done enough work in your life for several, maybe 10, 20 professors, and all your leadership isn't even included in your Vita. So I know you must not have had a lot of hobbies. You loved your work, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, I love my work. I think we all love our work. And, I think it's a blessing to be in a situation where you you love your work like a hobby and more. Um, And I think it comes because of purpose, which this gets back to the values a little bit. Mm -hmm. You had a very clear purpose, and it stems from your mission statement that you mentioned earlier. But even then, people have to get away sometimes and get away from the crowds, be alone periodically. And I would guess that you're probably more of an introvert than an extrovert because you've written so much in your life. (laughs) But I don't know. Yeah, you're right. How do you make decisions about, okay, I'm feeling enough stress right now, or I've been working so much, it's time for me to stop for a while. How do you know when that point hits? When I say stop, I mean maybe take a vacation for a week, maybe... I don't even know, take a day off in the middle of a week. I, I, I've heard of people doing this where periodically they'll say, I need a break and I'm gonna take this day off, you know? I'm not good at that, I don't know when to know. How do you determine when to regroup? Well, my body told me uh, at one point, uh, I developed vertigo and went to lots of doctors and wound up going to UAMS and went through all the tests and the brain scans and stuff and talked with the head of that practice there at UAMS and he said, your problem is caused by cats. I said, we don't have a cat. 
He said, no, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, or stress. And I said, I'm non-caffeine. I've never, ever smoked. I'm a teetotaler. It's stress. It occurred at the time of all the Houston nut, Gus Malzahn things were going on. So I realized that I was internalizing things and it was I was paying a price for it. And so that's when I, I came back and I told Alan Sugg, when I secure Frank Brawl's successor, I'll be stepping down as chancellor. Wow. Now John, mm-hmm. Dean of College Business, Dean English, you've known Dr. White for how long? Oh my, my whole career. And then my PhD advisor was his best, their best friends. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I've, long time. And I know you've told me many times, um, because before I became dean, three and a half years ago, John gave me lots of coaching. He still does to this day. But there's been many times you've brought up Dr. White in our conversations. So what are some things that have really stood out in your mind about his leadership and how he's led and how that's affected your leadership? Yeah, I, um, I've had the good fortune of being mentored by John White. Some of the things I think about even to this day, hard questions go to Dr. White when I don't really know what to do with the situation. It's things that I have always sensed is um, exceedingly wise counsel and that his experience base plus just his instincts can lead me through some very treacherous waters. And I, I could go specific with some, but well, I know, because it, it, it has been a very fortunate thing to have Dr. White as a mentor to me. Uh, tenacity, you know, not stubbornness. I've never seen a stubborn bone in his body, but I've seen tenaciousness. Well, that's interesting because there was a study done by a Harvard business professor by the name of Angela Duckworth. Have you, have you read her? I know of her. Well, she wrote a book that I really liked, and it's called Grit. Yep. And she, did, she studied, like, what does it take for people to be successful? What characteristics need, you, do you need to be successful across any industry? And she came up with two, and they were there was a mo- they were moderating variables, and that is persistence or tenaciousness, and passion. One without the other doesn't do it. You need both together. And she's the one that coined the term grit to represent the presence of both persistence and passion. And I think as we've been doing this interview right now, one thing that's really come out about Dr. White is he's got passion. That's been very clear to me. I've seen it. But you just brought up the other piece of that, and that is persistence or being tenacious. And Matt, I don't think there's a better example than the campaign for the 21st century. You know, uh, one of the things that Dr. Nachman and I did um, about a year or so ago, we sat down with the Chancellor, Chancellor White, and asked him what was behind that campaign. And he talks about going across Arkansas, and the discovery that our brightest minds were leaving the state and the whole focus of the campaign for 21st century was to raise the necessary funds to make University of Arkansas what it is today and for the best minds of the state to stay in the state and to which we can say mission accomplished and Dr. White didn't let up on that. He kept the pedal on the metal. Well, when 
when I came as chancellor, well, actually came for the interview, I met with all of the vice chancellors, and they asked me, they were, tell me, what's your management style? I said, well, my management style is to be gone all the time <laughs> because I'm counting on you to be running the university. And if you need me here, then there's probably something going wrong with one of your areas. That's why I need to be here to help you. For me, I'm going to be an outside person. And I believe in kudzu management. Kudzu is this vine that grows across South Arkansas. It goes all the way across through Mississippi and Alabama, all the way across Georgia. I mean, it, it just spreads. And you can travel miles on, inter, on the Highway 82 going from Greenville all the way over to, I think I actually saw it in Hilton Head, South Carolina. It's a vine and you can't see it growing, but you turn your head and look back and it's grown. And if you weren't careful, it'll cover your house. And I'm telling you that you won't see year to year the progress we're gonna be making here, but in five years you look back and you're gonna say, oh my. And in 10 years, you're not gonna believe what's gonna happen with the University of Arkansas. Because one thing I am, is I am persistent. I came home because I know what Arkansas needs and I'm gonna do all I can to make it happen. Now, it turns out that after I came, then I went up and I met with the folks in Bentonville and David Glass, who was the CEO there at Walmart, he said, John, I really like the things that you're saying that you want to do with the university. The state really needs it. But I'm afraid you're going to get so much resistance that you're going to decide to just stop and leave. And I said, David, I believe so strongly in what I came home to do that if I got a no vote of confidence out of the faculty, if the students came and they protested outside the chancellor's residence, and the newspapers were against me. I'm still here. I came home for one reason only, and that's to give Arkansas a research university that we could be proud of. That's why I'm here. And he said, oh, I hope that you will stay and I, I hope you'll accomplish it. Well, I was about three years into the job and I, I wondered, why did I say that to David? <laughs> but I persisted. And later on, I saw David and I said, you remember that conversation? He said, yes, and there were times there where I wondered if you were going to really live up to what you told me. <laughs> but it is, it's just, and, and I, I told Coach Brawls, I said, Frank, you and I have a lot of things in common. You came from Georgia Tech and I came from Georgia Tech. And we both had red hair and we were both stubborn. And I'm going to try to do for the university, what you've done with athletics here. I'm gonna to try to make us great. That was it. That's a great, one final thing. You work hard. And one thing I've noticed about all great leaders, they work hard. Now, in some cases, as academics, we document our work because we have journal articles, we have grants, we have books, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got lots of books, you've got lots of articles, you've got lots of grants. And there's no way to do it except through hard work. You know, I know you're more of an introvert than an extrovert. So you have to put your head down and, and do the hard work and you've done it. There's a, people in other industries where they don't document it as well, but you know 
know, if you've been around some of these people, that they clearly have done it, uh, a lot of hard work. I think sometimes people, when they see leaders, especially young people, or people who maybe aren't from homes where they haven't been around a lot of leaders that are successful, that it's easy for them to look on to certain leaders and think they're privileged. They were put into this position. But in reality, even mid-level leadership positions mm -hmm. are quite competitive. Hard work is required. You, you must have been born a hard worker. I, I just, how did you pick up on your work ethic? Where did that come from? Well, I don't know. I started mowing lawns in junior high, and I haven't stopped working since. Through high school, I worked in Dairy Queen. When I was at the university, I waited tables at one of the sorority houses. Well, now that was a hard work. I yeah, know. well, it actually, <laughs> actually it was. But fortunately, one of those sorority houses where I worked was where Alan Sugg's wife was. And I knew her, told her. I said, you can't ever give me a hard time. I saw you at breakfast. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, in the summers, I worked. I was a milkman, hauled hay, worked on the highway, just worked all well, along. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, some people think of work as a bad thing, whereas I think people who have worked a lot and accomplished a lot find that it's actually one of the f most enjoyable things you can do, especially when you work and you accomplish things, especially difficult things that require a lot of time and thinking. Once you accomplish it, it feels good. How do you think we could get to the point where we could reveal that truth to students maybe that haven't experienced it yet? Well, if they take one of my courses, they'll experience it. <laughs> now nobody's going to take your course. <laughs> well, that's exactly what the feedback is on the leadership course. It's the most work I've ever done in a class. It's the best course I've ever taken and changed my life. So I'm trying to show them the benefits of hard work. I have never felt like I was the smartest person in the room, but I did know no one was going to outwork me. That's where you got a choice. I think, I have a hunch that is a competitive advantage when you realize that. And then I'll tell you, he's probably the smartest guy in the room too, usually. I, I, would, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree. I have one question yeah. that I'd like to ask. And, mm -hmm. and so we mentioned a moment ago about him being a key mentor for me and having such a high impact on me. A lot of that, the time with you was very large in some of the busiest times of your chancellorship. So my question to you, and I really prefer you not talk about me in the response to this, but obviously mentoring people has been very important to you. Because in the busiest season of your life, perhaps, you still are spending time with me. And actually, I walked out of your office sometimes wishing I didn't know what I just learned. But I learned so much by some of the things that you were going through. Why would you do that? I mean, and not, not about me, but why? Because you obviously have had this impact on other lives your whole career. Why have you done that? Actually, at the time, I didn't even consider that it was mentoring. I didn't even have that word in my vocabulary until just recently. It's not an, a word that was all that common at the time. I was just uh, the same way that I work with graduate students and anything else, and I had a consulting business, and 
we've sold it to Cooper's and my brand and all and that it's just it's about being around people for me and usually I had people around me because I needed help that's where the mentoring came they were in a sense helping me and in helping me perhaps something rubbed off on them that I just try to walk my talk be me I, I like to play with my cards up there are no hidden agendas what you see is what you get with John White that's the way I've tried to live my life, and I'm very much a people person. I think that's why I wound up in the major that I wound up in. Because in the end, it's all about the people. And at Georgia Tech, when I was dean, I had a slide that said, we measure our success one student at a time. And that's the way I measure my success, is one student at a time. I measure my success beyond that in one individual at a time. Taught Sunday school, many years in adult Bible studies and things like that. I just basically use 2 Timothy 2 too, that whatever you've heard from others and pass it on. So I just try to, to do that. If I had it to do over again, if I had the chance to be chancellor again, I'd do it so much better than I did it. Because I believe I know far more about how to be an effective leader now than I did when I came here in 1997. I was not prepared to be the chancellor. I watch what Chancellor Steinmetz has done and I just say, why didn't I think of that? How's he doing this that I didn't and thought never entered my mind to do this? And I think there's a reason. I skipped two important steps along the way. I was never a department head. I was never a provost. I went from being the head of a research center to being the dean to being the chancellor. I didn't know how to be chancellor. And so I look back on it and knowing what I know now, oh, I could have done that so much better. But that's the thing about leadership. To be an impeccable, effective leader, that's not a destination, that's a journey. And it's a lifetime journey. And I think I am far more effective today than I was then. And hopefully I'll be more effective tomorrow than I am today. It's just a continuous process. It's not a, it's not a become, it's a becoming a leader. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, Follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.